geopolitics has always been part of every company's agenda. This is not new. But what is new, I think, is the fact that it's moved from being the purview of government relations and chief risk officers to fundamentally being the purview of CEOs and boards. And as one CEO said to us, geopolitics now trumps capital markets. I have to think significantly about these issues and dedicate mindshare. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Ziad Hader, one of our guests today for a discussion of geopolitical resilience, what it is, why companies need it, and how to build it in your organization. Ziad is the Global Director of Geopolitical Risk at McKinsey, and he's based in our Singapore office. Prior to joining our firm, Ziad served in a number of national security roles in the U.S. government. Ziad, it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. And Leo Geddes is a partner based in London and co-leads our geopolitics client service globally. He's also a leader in our public sector practice. And prior to McKinsey, he was a British diplomat. Leo, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Great to be here. And we also have Olivia White, a senior partner in our Bay Area office and a director of the McKinsey Global Institute, which is our business and economics research arm. She leads our work there on global economic flows. Olivia, it's great to have you today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, John. Olivia, why don't you start us off by giving us some context on the current geopolitical dynamics and how they've been changing? It has been quite a, quite a past few years. Um, from COVID to where are we with inflation to climate change to AI, and of course, a whole host of events that highlight geopolitical tension from uh, changing role of China, tension between the US and China, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and other aspects of, of the, of the uh, global world today that uh, my colleagues will talk about as we go. We are living in a world of tremendous economic connection but of geopolitical tension and fragmentation. And everybody operating in business today, as well as leaders in policy, have to reckon with those two poles. It's becoming multipolar, and a multipolar world between US-aligned countries and China. Now, exactly what that means, one can debate. But historically, from about the end of World War II, the US-aligned nations shared or were responsible for the bulk of the world's material capability, but with a fairly uh, steady rise of the Soviet Union. And that rolled over quite drastically and not surprisingly in uh, 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And since that period onward, China has been moving up and up and up. So there's been talk in recent years about the end of globalization. Does your research also support that view? The fact of the matter is that global trade has been growing, um, and it's been growing for the past 10 years at about the pace of GDP. And trade between the U.S. and China over the past year uh, was as significant as it's ever been. And the connections linked to that continued growth of trade are real. But then, of course, the way that we're connected isn't just through trade of, of goods. It's also through trade of services, and here financial services is an example and really importantly, intangibles. And you'll see a couple of broad patterns emerging here that are going to be important for any company thinking about the potential implications of geopolitical tension on its operations. APAC, China, the EU are highly dependent on other regions for uh, the bulk of resource needs, so minerals and energy and grains, et cetera, with some exceptions. 
On the other hand, many uh, regions with more developing economies are providers, net providers to other regions of such resources. In the US and Canada and North America are a sort of mixed story, not as dependent on any region for any single thing, but dependent on everyone for everything. And finally, particularly China and then many of the developing regions in the world are highly dependent on others for IP. So even when you have, for example, lots of Chinese manufacturing, there's a lot of IP dependence so intellectual property dependence on other parts of the world. Sure. Thank you, Olivia. So have these interdependencies actually changed over time, particularly since the pandemic, given all the supply chain issues that arose then? And where do you see this going? This is a super important question. The fact of the matter, and we've studied this longitudinally, the fact of the matter is that the nature of these connections evolve over time, but only quite slowly. So you see only a percentage point or two shift in any given year. So as we're talking about geopolitical tension, yes, that may be a forcing device to shift this, but the fact is that economic interconnectivity will remain absent something really extraordinarily drastic. Well, let's hope that these economic connections are actually here to stay. Um, are there any vulnerabilities in them, though, in the short term that could affect a company's operations? At MGA, we find that 40% of global trade is concentrated. Now, what we mean by that is that 40% of global trade by value, the importing economy depends effectively on three or fewer economies, other economies, for supplying it. And there are two kinds of concentration that are important, but they're both kinds of concentration that make a country and then potentially companies that operate within it more potentially vulnerable to disruption. So the first type is what we call global concentration. And this is when most of the trade of a particular good is supplied by two or three countries in the world. And soybeans is a great example. So 90% of the exported soybeans in the world come from the United States or, to, or, or from Brazil. So for example, China gets roughly that amount of uh, its soybeans from the US plus Brazil, a little bit more Brazil than the US. Um, and any other country in the world that's buying soybeans at any uh, scale is getting it, getting them from those two countries with some long tail grips and dress. Other examples of this, iron ore, Australia being the one that leads, laptops, mobiles, uh, for those, China. But there's another form of global concentration, and this is responsible for about 30% of global trade. And uh, we call this economy-specific concentration. And this is a concentration where there are actually a fair number of suppliers in the world, but most countries buy from only two or three uh, others. So for example, take wheat. Turkey gets almost all of its wheat from Russia plus Ukraine. And we had this conversation about a number of uh, countries in Central uh, Asia and uh, North Africa when Russia first invaded Ukraine. Wheat's a case where there are roughly 15 countries that supply about 90% of the wheat. Bananas, bananas an interesting one. Russia purchases 95% of its bananas from Ecuador. But actually, there are a number of countries in the world that actually produce bananas. So this just is to highlight the degree of economic dependence overall, but also the way in which individual countries and indeed companies are dependent on what's happening in just a few parts of the world as the world is configured. Now, something doesn't need to be big or obviously important to matter a lot. 
Interesting. So, so I assume that in the case of a disruption due to war or natural disaster, some of these goods may be easier to find elsewhere or to find substitutes for them than others. Yes, absolutely. And the amount of time that it takes to shift from using one good to another varies tremendously, therefore, on the good. So we, for example, the wheat that I buy from Russia is the same as the wheat that I buy from Ukraine. You mod- modular small differences is the same as the wheat that I buy from Canada is the same as the wheat that I buy from Argentina. Not so for not so for chips. And also, you know, for example, I might choose to eat corn or feed my livestock corn or soy in a pinch. Um, I'm not going to shift from I, memory chips to diamonds, for example. Multinationals are at the eye of this storm. So they disproportionately drive flows across the world. So they are disproportionately the glue that provides economic connection across this global world. And also, therefore, they're disproportionately influenced by global fragmentation and the uncertainty that that, uh, that, that yields. Multinationals are responsible for 32% of global value-add flows, 64% of exports. And then when it comes to knowledge-intensive goods and electronics or pharmaceuticals or auto would be example of these, 82%. So the things that are really, you know, Sean, to your question, in some form, least substitutable, you have multinationals playing a real extraordinarily important role. And so how do these economic dependencies play out for different types of multinationals? Can you offer some industry examples? We ran simulations for automotive companies uh, in which we looked at what a disruption to global flows might look like. And we find that it could be a 40 to 60% reduction in enterprise value. So it's like very, very significant. And so the question that lots of companies are asking about, how do I, do I shift out of some regions? Do I manage to isolate my operations in some regions? Do I manage to put myself in a position so that I could separate operations or the way that I sell, for example, in two different regions? There's a lot of money at stake in those sorts of questions, which is I'm sure not, not a surprise to anybody on, on who's listening to this. Um, But I will highlight that the nature of the connection actually does depend in a fairly interesting and important way on the type of company. We look at a couple of different multinational archetypes, and these are archetypes that McKinsey Global Institute uses a bit more broadly, Uh, but makers and deliverers, for example. So that would be the automotive companies. Fuelers, so uh, oil and gas companies, for example. Discoverers and technologists, so this is where pharma or semiconductors would set and then financiers. So this is where the finance industry sits. And what this means is that the view as a different type of company that you take really does need to be specific to the type of company you are, but also more particularly who you are. And so, for example, I often companies will say, well, how do I think about my China operations? Well, if you're selling into China, that's very different from if you're producing in China. And it's important to be able to distinguish between different forms of interdependency and then the associated value at stake. Thanks, Olivia. So I'll be turning to your colleagues in a moment, but I have one more question for you. There's the value at stake, but there's also the company's reputation, as we saw with many organizations' reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I know you studied the corporate response. What did you find? We looked at global Fortune 500 companies in Russia before that invasion. And we found that as of uh, February, really uh, 
birthday, February 13th, uh, 2022. These are the companies that we're in at that point. And then we look and we say, who's in now today? I think I did this as of uh, June 6th. Uh, in the US and in Europe, 87% of companies who had been in Russia had exited. Asia, that number was that the, the ratios were somewhat reversed. Only 42% had exited. So people were making choices. Many of those choices had uh, economic underpinning as well as obviously a set of, of values underpinning them. Part of what I like so much about your question, Sean, is it highlights the degree to which these decisions are, are, are complicated. The link to sanctions and economic constraint, the link to uh, a role that a country and then therefore a, a, a multinational housed within the country is 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 playing in the world. They link to what employees uh, exert pressure towards. They link to what consumers exert pressure towards. And um, companies have to take all of these things, obviously, in, into account. Thanks so much, Olivia. Now, Ziad, I'm really interested in um, you sharing your perspective on all this as well. You worked in national security before joining our firm. And what's your take on the shifts that Olivia has laid out? Okay. Well, in one level, one significant fracture, obviously, that we're living with is in Europe amidst Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The disruption caused by that isn't just, you know, and most importantly, it is about human lives and loss in that country. Uh, in a in a war zone. So we have to think about this not just in commercial terms, but there's an economic human consequence in Ukraine, but the spillover effect in Europe and the rest of the world uh, from an energy, from a defense, from a strategic point of view has been, you know, a watershed moment. And if we want specific data points on examples of that, uh, look no further, frankly, than Finland and Sweden. These are countries that have for long not been in NATO and have kept it at bay, but are, are, have now pivoted to join that is a significant example of one security shift. Look at the defense budget posture in Germany and look at the energy posture in Europe. So Europe and what's happening over there with global ripple effects is obviously one significant theme. The other major fractures in the Indo-Pacific, where we've had since World War II, of course, there was a Korean War in Vietnam, but long periods since then of stability and peace. But what now is the tagline between China's relationship with the West? Well, from a Western point of view, it's de-risk, but not decouple, which means trying to have a bit of both ways. There's a desire to sort of carve out sectors of the economy that are exposed, where there are national security sensitivities, but there's a recognition of the very flows that Olivia illustrated. So that element of multipolarity is going to have consequences because it's going to create more friction points, and that's going to trickle down to business. Really interesting. So do you find that these questions are prominent in top executives' minds now? It would be no surprise that more surveys at McKinsey, when we look at what's on top of this board and CEO agenda, it is geopolitics. Geopolitics has always been part of every company's agenda. This is not new. But what is new, I think, is the fact that it's moved from being the purview of government relations and chief risk officers to fundamentally being the purview of CEOs and boards. And as one CEO said to us, geopolitics now trumps capital markets. I have to think significantly about these issues and dedicate mindshare, right? Another CEO mentioned to us, I think, in equally uh, honest terms, that we have a pretty good understanding now of the problem, but we don't really have any great solutions. The frame we use is geopolitical resilience. It is easy to talk about risks, but within these shifting geopolitical currents, there are also opportunities. So we deliberately use the term resilience to be able to think of capturing both the opportunities and managing the downsides. Sean, your question? Uh, that, that sounds great. So before we talk about 
these resilient solutions, I wonder if you could pinpoint which frictions or fractures are most significant for company strategies. Yeah, so look, there are a few watch points I'd offer. One is, of course, trade and what is going to happen with the different barriers that are currently in place. The second is technology. The, the third one is human rights issues, which actually are not just about values, but have hard business implications for companies with supply chains. The fourth is domestic politics. There's politics in the US, there's politics in European capitals. Sure. So given their economic influence, are multinationals also engaging and influencing their own country's policies on geopolitics? Well, I think some of that is, uh, Olivia mentioned, some of that is driven by internal forces. The organization, your employees expect you to take a position of principle. There are a number of these markets where companies have had to exit in recent years. But there's another point, I think, Sean, in your question, which is, it's a bit of shape or be shaped, right? And I don't mean that in a cynical way. I also mean that practically, that what is the role of business to be a bit of a conduit? So I do think that there is this question of what is the nodal connectivity that businesses can provide? But I kind of flip it in its head, which is that isn't just a question that companies have to think about externally. How do we hold it together? It's quite an internal challenge. Many companies are dealing with these external fissures coming home to roost internally where your colleagues in different markets and emerging markets have different views from headquarters. So how are you negotiating those views? How are you holding your enterprise together and, and maintaining sort of that one firm dynamic? That's a real imperative. Sure. Sean, could I add one one other element to this? Of course, what consumers want is also an incredibly important element of this. And just if I think about the different companies that I've worked with on the past over the past year or so on the issue, this question of okay, do customers in and particularly consumers in a given region, to what degree are they looking for something that's an international product or perhaps a product that reflects what people in the U.S. are doing? Or much, much more frequently now, to what degree is there sort of a resurgent view of, like, these are the things that we want as consumers from this particular country. And so that's a super important aspect of all of this as well. Thank you both so much. Um, Leo, we haven't heard from you yet, so let's turn the spotlight on you. Ziad mentioned this concept of geopolitical resilience and the importance of building it. Can you take us through how companies can actually develop this resilience? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to build on, on some of the things that um, Ziad and Olivia have said. I mean, we've been out talking to lots and lots of uh, companies globally to get a sense of you know, what are the things that the, 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 some of the really best companies are doing to help prepare themselves, to help build those muscles, to be able to build this um, geopolitical resilience. And what we've seen is that really there are these three buckets of things that people are doing. You know, there's this idea of sense and understand, enhanced instrumentation of geopolitics. What does that mean? You need to build, or what we're seeing the best organizations are building a way to understand the world around them. And that might be, for example, through sort of AI-backed um, uh, sentiment analysis or media analysis fused with their own um, interpretation of what's happening at the front lines. And then, that, and then presenting that back to decision makers in a way that's easily digestible and that, and that changes with, over time. The next thing that we're seeing um, you know, great companies do is, is recalibrating their scenarios, making sure that they have a set of scenarios which are, you know, covering both, you know, the extreme things that might come their way, but also this idea of these gray rhinos, these things which are likely that you can see coming, but you're going to need to take some action in order to manage them. And the third part of this sense and understand piece then is around this idea of recursive loops or feedback loops. 
And and what you know what we've seen from what Olivia's saying and what Ziad's saying is that you know, these externalities, be they to do with flows or to do with geopolitics, they are shifting. And so you need the organization to be able to learn and, and adapt over time. And so have, making sure that there are the structures and systems in place to as you're learning new information to, to sort of shift the, the, the approach and the posture of the organization. And then this, this sort of second bucket then around building capability and organize. The, the, one of the things that we've seen time and time again, and we've talked a little bit about it already today, is the importance of the board in, in, in helping steer an organization to, as it sort of deals with geopolitical externalities. And, and what you can't have is a situation where the first time that a board starts to talk about a topic is when the issue is already there. And, and so getting the board into a mindset where they are going to be expected to lead on these um, geopolitical topics. And they have already started to discuss what their posture might be, how they might react to a particular set of circumstances. As part of that, then, you also need to build a, a, a sort of build geopolitics into the heart of your decision-making more broadly. Actually, these sort of big geopolitical or, or sort of flow questions have the ability to influence all sorts of decisions. And so you need to make sure the best companies are starting to think through, how do we apply this geopolitics lens? What does that mean in terms of resource allocation? And then the final thing, you know, as part of that, underpinning both of those elements, is making sure that the structures are in place in order to help deliver that. And, and so what does that mean? Well, in practice, it means you know, making sure that um, you know, across legal risk and communications, your teams are operating as one. And of course, hand in glove with business units. This is not something that happens in isolation. It, exactly as Ziad says, this needs to be central to the way the organization thinks. And then the final bucket is this idea about act and communicate. Um, and we talked a bit here uh, already. I mean, Olivia was talking about this sort of the, the need to think intelligently about segmentation and, and organizational configuration. And that might be, for example, you know, as you think about technology, do you need to um, have uh, your tech um, sort of data localization in one region versus another? Do you need to think about, for example, um, uh, approaching capital markets in country X for use in, in, in that same country? So thinking much more cleverly about, okay, well, how does this, some of these, this sort of fracturing that Ziad's been talking about uh, impact some of the big decisions that we need to make as an organization over um, the way that we think about technology, the way we think about supply chains, the way we, the way we think about location strategy. And then the final two elements, so you know, the, the first one is about having a very clear narrative. We talk a lot in the organization about you know, having a clear sort of value uh, or mission statement in, in an organization and being really clear what that narrative looks like. Uh, and also to, to the point that Olivia made, recognizing that that narrative is going to be seen by external um, partners or external stakeholders, and that might be you know, the shareholders, it might be you know, governments, regulators, but also your consumers and your customers, and, and also your internal, so you know, your, your employees. And, and, and something which I think all of us have learned, you know, you know, some of us the hard way, is that it's not as easy as it used to be to have one narrative externally and something else internally. Your employees now have their own voice. They're also out out there in the in the real world and companies can be tripped up very quickly if they if they are found to be inauthentic and then that takes us to, to the final point and Ziad touched on this a little bit too you know the reality is you know geopolitics may be happening at the, at, at the national level but it's felt deeply personally 
And so what that means is, as an organization, you have to find a way to have difficult conversations around geopolitical topics in a way that is genuinely inclusive and that allows sort of the development of, of a sort of a, a shared view or at least as a, an open discussion on you know what geopolitical issues might be across um, an MNC and your employees are looking for those signals to get a sense of you know what is our organization about do I really fit in here does it understand me as an individual and when we look across this these are the sort of um, elements that we see some of the best organizations doing it adds, just to re-emphasize, it's not a menu. It's not something you sort of pick or have some of number one, some of number five, and some of number eight. It really is a sort of compre- comprehensive set of actions that you need to be taking as an organization. And so how do multinationals actually make the decisions around things like applying this to their supply chain and which companies to operate in? Um, let's say that they're doing the sense and understand that you described. They've built the capability they understand how their strategy connects to geopolitics, and now they need to decide, where am I placing my bets? How do they do that? I mean, the first thing to say is, look, you know, we're talking about geopolitics now, and of course, the world has, has changed a lot, you know, as we've seen from, from the conversations that we've had so far. But, but you know, with the business fundamentals are still the business fundamentals, right? So, you know, you're, you've got to be thinking about value. Of course, we've talked about your stakeholder set. That's that's going to be feeding into it as well, external and internal. And then, you know, there are just the, the same risk considerations that we've had before now, too, in terms of, well, you know, how does diversification manage help us manage our risk? So geopolitics is, of course, something that's in front of mind for us. But you know, many of the tools and reactions that we will have are things that we have had for other situations. I don't know, Ziad, if you wanted to come in there and, and, and add, a, add a bit more. No, I think, I mean, I think it's a multifaceted calculation, right? Of course, cost. Of course, China is still important. So that's why companies are looking to places like Vietnam and Malaysia for proximity to sourcing components from China. There is political, regulatory stability. There's, you know, proximity to markets and customers. I mean, it's not just Western MNCs that are de-risking. You have Chinese companies that are scaling up in Mexico to be closer to the U.S. market, right? So, I mean, this is a global game and all companies are thinking about it. So I think it's a number of those different factors aggregated. And so that granularity of political risk is about how do you now bring this lens to all of your strategy questions uh, as an organization, as you cast across the globe and try to maintain that kind of a globally integrated footprint. Thank you. Um, are there any other practical tips you'd like to share on how to develop these dimensions of resilience? Yeah, I'll be very brief. I mean, I think this is very much in the sensing and understanding category. Everyone reads the newspapers, but is there a common baseline of facts? Leo said it very nicely. You don't want to be understanding the facts when you have to make a decision. So how does an organization you know, upgrade its leadership's understanding of these topics in an aligned way. And so that idea of providing a monthly update that does two things. One, separate, as we say, like the noise from the signal. There's a lot of noise out there. Well, what matters to the organization? And and making sure that those, those developments are understood. And secondly, is not having updates that truly look backward and distill what's happened, but help an organization look forward. The third thing underlying this is who is doing this, right? I mean, is this a government relations thing? Is it a strategy thing? When lots of organizations are standing up dedicated geopolitical risk or policy units that do this kind of work. And so think about 
what's the right part of your organization to be developing and coordinating this content to, again, have an aligned understanding of what's going on in the world in order to make better decisions. That's great. Anything else you want to add? When we think of board oversight, you know, it's very easy to get clustered up into the countries that are flashing bright red from a geopolitical risk point of view. And the fact is, is as we were saying, how do you bring a more granular lens to your global footprint? And one discipline that we've seen clients employ is to actually do a mapping exercise and ask themselves, well, there are varying degrees of geopolitical risk we face. Here's how we may differentiate between them in terms of categories of risk. Here are the markets where this is happening. And then, you know, it's not just about the risk, but what are the controls we want to put in place in each of these markets? What are the sort of, you know, guardrails we want to have in place so that we're managing this? And every month having the leadership team or the board take a look at this document and say, how are we tracking? That again, just creates a disciplined way to talk about geopolitical risk versus getting chased or pushed off your beat by the next headline or the next event that's happened. So just think of these types of frameworks as helping anchor your monitoring of geopolitical risk exposure. So uh, thank you. What about the geopolitical risks that seem very distant, very unlikely, the so-called black swans or other unknown or perhaps unexpected events? How do you work with companies to map and prepare for those? Black swans is a known trap, right? How does one anticipate? I mean, in some ways, it's an unknowable event. But a lot of what we just discussed was the way you manage your near term. Equally important, and if anything, after the experience of their Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the need to look around the corner, the need to lift one's gaze, the need to, you know, as, as was very nice, you said one of the best books on scenario planning called The Art of the Long View, the need to reperceive the future and the way it might evolve has become critically important. One could hypothetically put down on paper some ideas, right? Is it another pandemic? Is it a potential, you know, a climate catastrophe? Are there events that could happen that could completely, as with COVID, knock you off in terms of your supply chains? So how do you think about black swans? The next is how do you think about gray rhinos, right? These are the risks that are out there. They're known risks. They're known knowns. They're charging at you. How do you think of getting out of the way? But it's a term that, again, forces you to think about not just the surprises, but the things you know are there and what are you going to do about them? Indeed. Thank you. Z Ziad, Leo, Olivia, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I, I really want to thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. And I'd also like to thank all of our listeners for joining us. If you'd like to dive deeper into this topic, we invite you to check out our compendium on McKinsey.com titled, How to Navigate Geopolitical Risk Amid a Fragmenting Global Order. You can also find a link to that in our show notes today. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we encourage you to email us at ITSR at McKinsey.com. That stands for Inside the Strategy Room. Or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. And we really appreciate all of our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. Please keep those comments and feedback coming. And if you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to follow our weekly series on your podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of past episodes. And if you visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com ITSR, you can also access written transcripts of our past episodes and take deep dives across six major themes 
Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.